listening to Talking Law, the podcast where business owners just like you discover how to avoid legal landmines and build value using smart legal tips. Join your host, Joanna Oki, as she cuts through the legal jargon and gives you clear and simple actionable legal strategies, which will get you optimal business results. Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to Talking Law, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we have part two of our three-part series, which is all about the most important steps, in fact, six steps to increasing the multiplier of your business, i.e. increasing the value of your business exponentially. And in order to talk about this topic, we have on board Mark Johnston from Sherlaw's Group and Nathan Williams from Customer Return. Now, if you have not listened to part one of this three-part series, I highly recommend you head back and uh, go to the episode just prior to this one that you're listening to right now so that you can hear us talk about what it means to increase the multiplier of your business and why you would care about that anyway. And as we delve Also, in that episode into step one, which was all about talent, capability, and culture. Now, in this episode, we're continuing on with our six steps to increase the multiplier of your business, launching right into step number two. So, let's take it away. Okay, Mark and Nathan, I just want to say a very big thank you for coming back for part two of our two-part series, all about the six steps to increase the multiplier of your business. And of course, uh, we had so much to say about this topic that in part one, we got to step one. <laughs> so, but, but the aim is to try and get through steps two to six in this uh, in this episode. Guys, do you feel up to the challenge? Absolutely, Joe. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, look, I'm, I'm loving this discussion and that, uh, that, that is clear by the fact that we only got through part one in, uh, sorry, step one in part one. So in step two, let's just launch straight into and just for, for um, any of our listeners out there who missed part one, maybe go back, listen to that first, because we started off with the first step of the six steps to increase the multiply of your business as talent, capability, and culture. So we've done that. We've ticked that off. If you're interested in hearing more about that, well, you better head back to episode one. But now we are talking about step two. So guys, hit me with it. What is the second step to increasing the multiplier of your business? Thanks, Joanna. Uh, The second step is to create product innovation in your way of doing business. So too many businesses we see out there, especially in the SME world, don't actually invest enough time in continuing to innovate their product and systematize the way in which they do things. Mm -hmm. So what that means is you can get caught with a product that isn't ready to respond to market changes or events like COVID. So that ability to have an innovation mindset around your product means that you're constantly changing your value proposition and restructuring your product so that um, you can create the most valuable revenue. And an example is taking you know, a product that's got a large transactional revenue component, which is the, the customer only buys it 
once or twice um, and changing that to a recurring revenue where they're mm. you know, on an annuity product base so that you've got reoccurring revenue because that's three times as valuable. And you know, that's where Nathan spends a lot of his time with their clients, you know, moving that, that product base from transactional to reoccurring. How do you do that, Nathan? Can, can you step us through what it is? How is it that you move the business from that once-off into the recurring? Yeah, thanks, Joan. I think part of it is certainly looking at what's the totality of the issue or the problem that the client is trying to solve. Mm. Um, so what are they trying to get done for their, for their clients? Um, and then once you've understood the totality of what what the clients of the business are trying to get done, then reverse engineering that and effectively productizing it. So as opposed to a once-off delivery, uh, you know, whether it's a once-off product or a once-off service, it's looking at stepping it out over 12 months, for example, and dealing with issues in a descending order from, from most to, to slightly less important and looking at what needs to be delivered, perhaps whether it's uh, face-to-face or over the phone and what can be done digitally uh, and just look at different means of, of, of service delivery as opposed to a once-off because, you know, I'm of the belief that if people only get something once bit around a workshop or a once-off service delivery, it's not enough to change behaviour. Mm-hmm. So you really need to look at what's the totality of what the client's trying to get done, what can be delivered uh, face-to-face or as an event versus what needs to be stepped out, be it um, over the phone, online, video, etc. So different means of delivery uh, and making that subscription cost not so high that people don't engage with it in the first case. So it's understanding the pitch or the message, how to then productize the delivery of it, and then looking at the pricing that makes sense. So it's scalable so you get more users within a business or more individual users of a particular product. Yeah, and it's such a good point that that you make. And and I think... um, Many businesses perhaps don't understand the um, multiplier um, effect um, of having recurring revenue that we're talking about here, but certainly um, most businesses I deal with understand you know, the benefits of having this recurring revenue income stream coming into their business. But it's one thing to understand that. Um, you, you know, it's one thing to understand it. It's another thing to be able to work out how to apply it. So can you give us an example of, um, you, you know, maybe sort of a simple case study, an example of a business that um, didn't have a recurring revenue component and how you're able to turn that into recurring revenue for them? Mark, I might divert to you on that one, sorry. Yeah, no, sure, of course. A really good sector where this plays out a lot is the financial services sector where, you know, we've had a new, because of superannuation introduced in 1992, we've had the emergence of the financial planning or the wealth management industry. Mm. Where that had typically evolved from was stockbroking and or accounting. So what we see with a lot of the second and third tier stockbroking companies is they've traditionally had stockbrokers that buy and sell stocks on behalf of their clients. So if I ring up my stockbroker and say I want to buy $10,000 worth of BHP, well, that's $10,000 um, worth of revenue into the business, but it's only worth one times revenue on the balance yep. sheet. So that, that $10,000 is worth 10000 bucks on their balance sheet. Yep. If I speak to one of their financial advisors and say, I want to become an advice client, and that company charges me $10,000 per year for that advice, during which I may or may not buy BHP, that $10,000 sits as $30,000 on their balance sheet. So it's mm. three times more valuable. So what we've seen a lot of the stockbroking firms do is try and change their product mix or innovate their products and their offerings 
to what's called wealth management services, wealth plus, things like that, mm. so that they can transfer their existing clients off trading or transactional. I want to buy stocks because you can go to Comstec or there's plenty of websites who do that cheaply mm. and move them to advice-based wealth plus, wealth management processes because it's much more valuable because it creates an, an annuity income Yeah, because um, every it- year I need advice. It's also a more holistic service, though, isn't it? You yeah, know, it's, it's better for the client. You to think, you, you know, more broadly about what it is that you can provide that's value, not just as a once-off, but, you know, that deep value that a client will want to continue paying for. Exactly. But, but therein lies the issue of, you know, you really does, I love, you've called this product innovation, but it does require innovation. That's the point. You know, there has mm. to be some creativity and thought. And that's, that's a really important point you make, Joanna, because what you've got to do is have it as a part of the way you do business. So you can't go to the Hunter Valley or Mornington Peninsula for an offsite or to the Napa Valley if you're in San Francisco and think about how we can do product differently. What it has to be is through client surveys, internal processes, Mm -hmm. whereby on a monthly basis you're looking at feedback, real-time data around what people are buying, where the market's moving, and the value proposition you can create. So it's it's got to be part of doing business. It's got to be scheduled on a monthly basis using real-life data because that way you can control or create the return as opposed to most people do it as an afterthought as a str- at the strategic offsite mm-hmm. and it doesn't really change anything in the business you go you have a mm-hmm. bunch of good ideas on the whiteboard but nothing actually happens at implementation level so the importance of having data and processes and having an ongoing feedback loop internally and mm-hmm. externally mm-hmm. you'll learn much more from your clients than you will from yeah. an internal conversation and critically internally it can't be the partners or the directors it's got to be through the whole business. It's got to be people that are speaking to clients at delivery and service level and support mm. level, and they have to have a voice to provide that unvarnished feedback because, you you know, you're better off um, responding to the market uh, quickly rather than reacting mm. way too late. Mm. And just, just on that, it's, yeah, I, I love that example, Mark, because it, it does bring a lot of a client example where, um, we did some work with a financial services dealer group. They're one of the bank line dealer groups. This is not that long after the GFC. And the short version of the story is that they had some real hesitation about reaching out to their clients at that time because it was just mm-hmm. based on the GFC and things weren't going that great on the markets. Um, but what ended up happening was we got engaged, ended up doing, uh, it was around about 1,500 client feedback surveys that effectively asked about three key areas of the business around product, service, delivery, uh, those sorts of uh, areas. And while they in some ways or in many ways feared what the responses might be, what came out of that is they got an uplift in retained, repeat and also referral business such that the return on investment on our engagement was about seven times. Wow. Uh, you know, and within about three to six months of the conclusion of that, of that engagement. So the point being that, Often businesses I find can some well can sometimes fear reaching out to their clients when things aren't going great, but that's actually when you want to do that. That's the time to do it because you'd rather hear the problem and be able to respond to it than not know. And so you know they were looking for new clients in this at this time at this GFC time, but the real gold was already in their database. Oh, I love yeah. it. We just gave them a framework by which to do that uh, professionally, independently. So we got feedback that they otherwise wouldn't have got. If, for example, the planner had rung them up, because most people don't tell 
Mm. The service provider because they're, you know, they're trying to be nice. They just mm. don't want to devolve, but they'll vote with their feet later and not go back. Mm. Um, so when it comes to recurring revenue, while they didn't develop a whole lot of new products, they did increase their the number of products or services that the clients were buying. Mm. So they got mm. more repeat, more retained, and more referral business. So after recurring revenue, you can just be getting more out of who's reading your database, not just by product innovation, but by getting them buying more, getting them coming back, getting them referring. Yeah. And I guess when we're talking about increasing the multiply, it is also then about having a system around that to, to you know, show that this is something that you can, that, that isn't a once-off, you know, something that's happening, you know, iteratively yeah. in the business. Yeah, absolutely. That, as, as Nathan said, so that it's repeatable. So you just don't do it once, but you actually yep. make it part of your business practices. Yeah. You know, every month you'll touch a certain amount of clients, have a strategic review quarterly, so that you actually, it is part of how you do business. So I love this. So this is about um, product innovation and recurring revenue um, is about constant iterations. I say, And I think some of the things we're canvassing here are just so important because many businesses, as I said before, um, businesses generally get it. Recurring revenue is um, is is the thing that they're all out there fighting for. But it's quite often it's done um, exactly as you say, sort of in uh, in a silo. And what mm-hmm. you're talking about here is developing it by constant iteration um, as you're constantly testing it and making sure you're getting feedback from the market along the way regularly and doing that in a systemized way. And, and to Nathan's point there, it's unvarnished feedback. Because you know, yeah. as Nathan said, if if someone who's delivering to the client rings up the client, they will say nice things. We're nice. Most people are nice people. So having an independent third do it is absolutely critical because they will say things to you or to your clients that they won't say to you. So having someone else do that is is really important and having your your, your frontline delivery staff trained to listen to clients most people mm. train on you know if the client says this say this back well, mm. what we've actually got to do well, if a client says this ask them why they're asking you that what more could they like drill down on it and actually get them to tell you more because those little bits of information are worth gold to your mm. business because the clients will tell you what you need to do and, and iterate and innovate in your business, yeah, and, and the follow-up is, is really important. And I've heard um, I, I've heard uh, Mark speak about this before. That you know, once you've got that feedback, often the next step, and again, this place to product innovation is the most important. And a lot of businesses don't do this. They might gather feedback, whether it's themselves or by using an independent provider. But then there's not an obvious next step from that that they then implement. So in terms of making part of the way you do business, the next step would obviously be effectively going to individual clients and saying, thanks so much, here's what we've heard, here's what we've learned, here's what we'd like to explore doing, and then explore with the clients, you know, what products or services could then best serve them moving forward and almost take like a research-based mentality, you know, uh, you know, to that process. So you're gathering that feedback and then using it to implement on new products and services. Yeah, I absolutely love it. We Obviously, we're talking about um, something here that can completely change a business, but I, I just want to throw in there, sometimes it, it can be easier than it might look. So um, I do a lot of work in recruitment and one of the simple ways to move to um, increasing recurring revenue is 
to increase attempt placement where business where you might just be in perm placement. So, so there's some sort of, I guess, simple examples, <laughs> but yeah. uh, you, you know, what we're talking about here obviously is looking at things in a more innovative way, but I, I just mean there can be simple ways to look at this as well sometimes. Yes. All right, brilliant. So let's move on to step number three then, the six steps to increase the multiplier of your business. What's step number three? So step number three is product extension. And this is where, you know, steps one and two are really important for a business, that talent, capability and culture and product innovation and systematization. But where the rubber really hits the road and the highest impact for NSME are the next two steps, which are both product extension and distribution channels, because they are where the the highest impact and the highest return on investment. They're the most valuable things that an SME business owner can focus their attention on. Yeah, so at step one, let's talk about product first before we get to channel extension. So if we go back to our business we've talked about, which is a $3 million EBITDA business times three as a multiplier with a $9 million enterprise value. Well, that $3 million profit is probably coming off the back of $9 million revenue if it's a 30% margin business, which a lot of SMEs are. So if that $9 million revenue is all from one product, that business is less valuable than if it has two products doing $4.5 million each. So just at a risk management level and at at an evaluation level, a business with two products is more valuable than a business with one because the market might go away. There might be some, you know, the market can change and you've got nothing to fall back on. Whereas if you have two products doing $4.5 million, well, one of them might suffer from COVID, but one of them might actually be enhanced through COVID. So you have that inherent risk management. And of course, the other thing to recognise, the second step to recognise when we look at product is that if you're doing $4.5 million of two products, well, we could probably get those to $9 million anyway. So if you spent $9 million, you know, getting revenue, $9 million revenue for one product, we can probably increase that $4.5 million to nine anyway. So at a second step, there's that capacity for growth. But where it really comes into play is by creating product extension opportunities because as you roll them out, you you get to leverage the brand and the value proposition that we're creating for our clients. So the, the simplest example of that is Disney. It started with a, a comic strip in 1934 and Walt Disney was serophobic, which means allergic to mice. So for the entrepreneurs out there, it doesn't necessarily mean something you love. He hated mice, but he saw a gap in the marketplace as an entrepreneur. So he started with a comic strip. His second product, his P2, was cartoon characters. Their P3 was toys. Their fourth product was theme parks. Their fifth product was TV and movies. And in fact, you know, for over 18 movies, they have the Touchstone brand because Disney's brand is fun and safe for family. And their P6 are cruise ships and they're the world's second largest cruise line operator. So across that product extension, they've extended off that value proposition and created it, you know, significant uplift in revenues. So as a business extends out its products, what it creates is more opportunities and your products you extend are often more valuable from a margin perspective than your initial product. So your core product can be sometimes, you know, where it's competition and and it's commoditized because you're in a saturated market. But as you extend products out, what you tend to do is identify new market opportunities. So as you're entering a new market, the margins and the profitability is much higher because there's not as much competition. 
So it allows you to continually enter into higher margin areas and growth markets. Uh, and 3M is another example of a, a company that, you know, 3M actually stands for Minnesota Mines and Manufacturing. I did yeah. not know that. Well, and they, 3M is no longer today. in Minnesota and they're <laughs> no longer in mining and they manufacture the odd thing. But what, what, we've, what companies who extend their products do is they actually continually, as I said, create those high-margin, high-profit growth areas and they're actually able, able to piggyback that growth. So the importance is if you've got an existing product today, when we look at creating a P2 and a P3, one of the, one of the contexts or the key criteria will be where is there a hyper-growth market? Mm. So if you were providing mining services back in 2001 to the mining industry, you had a hyper-growth 15 years because of the resources boom. Mm. So what it can do is get you thinking entrepreneurially about where are the growth markets we can leverage our our key skills and our key competencies and how can we package that differently? One of the risks, though, of adding extra businesses, extra products, product extension can be that the management team Mm -hmm. has a diffuse focus. Correct. Uh, So where is the point that you think, do you think there's a point? What are some of the telltale signs that maybe Mm. you're not big enough or you're not Mm. ready or versus you are? Yeah, and look, that's a really great question, Joanna. One of the first things when someone talks to us about, I want to create a new product, the first thing we ask them is, is this a bright, shiny new thing to distract from you haven't fixed product one? So often we'll see firms, especially in services, they'll open up, you know, if they're an accounting firm, they'll open financial planning or Mm. other things because they haven't fixed the underlying organic issues in that. So That's a really good question. So what we need to do is have product one or the foundation product really solid and operating because if as a leadership team or as a shareholding team, if you're working in your existing product and you're actually on the tools delivering it, your business is worth less than a competitor who has paid staff to do that. Mm. So what we need to do is create the capacity in the business to allow the senior leadership team to actually get into these higher value functions like product creation. So if it's an accounting firm and you're doing 2,000 hours a year on the tools in accounting, well, if we can release you to spend 600 hours a year creating a new product and Mm. have someone else deliver the accounting, that 600 hours a year is worth $4,000 an hour because Mm. you're worth much more working on your multiplier. So as a shareholder, you're actually worth more off the tools and your, your business is worth more and you can create that compound growth. So we absolutely need to make sure we have the underlying business working and operating. Mm. But this is where critically one of the mindset shifts when you think about the valuation multiplier and, and how to uh, you know, go up the range is if you're thinking as an uh, as a income person or a, a person working in the business, sometimes you can say, well, how we don't have the skills to do that. Mm. Or as soon as you're thinking about your share price, as an investor, so what we talk to owners about is actually let's really think about, let's shift your mindset as an investor. And if you own a business that has an opportunity to create a product and that, and it's a hyper-growth market, well, we then, we then talk to them about following what they do in Silicon Valley. So what a venture capitalist does in Silicon Valley is they recognise that 98.4% of the returns come from the asset class, not the individual company. So when we look at the, where the hyper-growth is, we'll say, well, we, what product do we need to create to, to, into a hyper-growth or a higher-growth market? Mm-hmm. What's the margin we'll make out of that? And then thirdly, 
what's the capability required? Because what an investor does or a venture capitalist do, they say there's a growth opportunity there. I would rather hire or joint venture or bring that skills in those skills into the business to run that. To, because I don't want to, you know, put the, you, as you said, Joanna, rightly put that at risk. I would rather hire on credential, not potential. So the mm. conversation we'll have with the owners is we've identified a significant product extension opportunity. We've done our research and there is a, you know, there's an opportunity to capture some of the market. And there are two choices. We can skill up the existing leadership team or we can bring in an additional, the, the right competencies from the market and that will accelerate that growth and critically not distract the original leadership team from the business. So adding that competency into the business or that skill set to prosecute the strategy is what a shareholder would do. And it's a mindset shift. If we think as an owner, if we think as a someone who works in the business in a partnership, we might be worried or concerned about that. But if we're thinking as a shareholder, well, of course, if we you know if, if we owned a BHP on the stock market and they mani- and they had an opportunity to create a new mine in Chile, and but the leadership team didn't want to recruit someone who was really good to make the mine make a lot of money, as shareholders, we we'd throw rocks at them at mm. their AGM. So we need to think like a business and say, "There's an opportunity there. Let's bring the right skills in because it's going to make us more money as a mm. shareholder." The other critical thing is to extend off, as you said, um, really um, elegantly, Joanna, off their core proposition. So all Disney's product extensions were off safe, fun and family. So if you go on a Disney cruise, it's a it's a Disney experience. If you product, Harley Davidson released a perfume. Now, for those on the call that know Harley Davidson, you know, a lot wow. of people are going road hard, <laughs> put away wet, and it failed spectacularly. <laughs> And why it failed spectacularly was it had no relevance to the brand or their existing customer base. I get that. Failed. So <laughs> that's why, you, you know, to your point there, you do have to do it from within your value proposition. But again, Richard Branson has done this with eight different products. Yeah. Just just on that, I've seen an example of that firsthand recently with a, with a client who is a return-to-work provider, so they help injured people get back to work. Mm. And long story short, they were an acquisition journey um, as well as bolstering the value of what they were doing before they started acquiring businesses and then went through its listed business and then went through a, a, a merger. And it's a bit of an iterative process. So to your question, Joanna, and also to Mark's point, they saw the value in acquiring a business in a related expertise. Yeah, so they were working with businesses helping prevent injuries, then manage injuries, then return workers to work, more physical injuries. Then there's psychological services businesses out there. They saw that as being a natural extension, like a product mm-hmm. extension, if you will. But as they're extending into that product, they knew it was the right way to go because this was a growing part of the industry. It was a synergistic fit for them. So it made sense to Mark's point about the Disney example. But as they extend out to that new product, they're also sort of double tracking a little bit and making sure that they're increasing their uh, sales capability, if you will, and their delivery capability in the existing core products. Extending, but they're also bolstering what they've done as core products or services to that time. Your process, you, you can expand and that's the bright, shiny sort of button, if you will, and it's always good to do that, but they're also reinforcing what they've done today. And that's a really great example. Uh, I think of how product extension can be achieved through acquisition, you know, and that's uh, that's the beauty of having your head around the acquisition. You know, we've started 
this episode, this podcast, by talking effectively about an exit, men, you know, mentality, which is thinking about what your value is at exit and and increasing the multiplier of that, right? But but here we're also talking about how acquisition can play into that as a whole. Um, I think we probably we've had some discussions about this. I think we've got a lot together to talk about in terms of acquisition um, as a growth strategy for business. So um, let's definitely come back to that in a future uh, future episode or two where we can really drill into that more uh, more deeply. Well, that's it for this episode of Talking Law, where we drilled further into the second part of our three-part series, all about the six steps to increase the multiplier of your business, i.e., the value of your business exponentially. Now, if you'd like more information about this topic, then head over to our website at talkinglaw.com.au. There you'll be able to download a transcript of this podcast episode if you want to read it in more detail. And there you'll also be able to find how to contact our very special guests, Mark Johnston from Sherlaw's Group, and Nathan Williams from Customer Return. On that website, you'll also be able to find out details of how to contact our lawyers at Aspect Legal if you or your clients would like assistance in helping to build solid foundations from a legal perspective in a business in order to support the growth of your business. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. So look, don't hesitate to head over to the website and find our free booking service there where you can book yourself a free initial discussion with one of our legal eagles at Aspect Legal. If you'd like to find out how we can assist your business or your clients' businesses in building the solid foundations from a legal perspective that are required to help ensure that they're properly set up for growth and to avoid those storms of business along the way. Well, that's it. Now, don't forget to tune in for our next episode, which is our last of this three-part series, all about the six steps to increase the multiplier of your business. In order to do that, make sure you hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player so it can be delivered straight through to your podcast listening device as soon as we release it. That's it. Thanks again for listening in. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and Talking Law, a podcast very proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Are you looking for a top quality legal team to assist you in your organisation? Aspect Legal is an innovative commercial legal practice that specialises in providing fast and professional services for their clients. If you'd like to chat about how we might be able to assist you, simply head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au to book in a time for a free discussion with one of our lawyers. Thanks for listening to Talking Law. Tune in next time for more smart legal tips and tricks to keep you clear of those legal landmines. If you want to get a download of today's show notes, head over to talkinglaw.com.au. Information in this podcast is general in nature, not legal advice. If you want advice for your business, visit talkinglaw.com.au.